Corporates, when, when you don't have a dedicated fund structure, when there's nothing contractual that gives you, you know, a six-year term, 10-year term, or anything like that, the corporates have the right and, and, and frankly, the history of turning things on and off with the flick of a switch. I've been, you know, the good thing, I guess, about my background of being in corporates for as long as I did is I've seen the draconian sort of outcomes that can happen in times of pressure. And I didn't want to see that happen, of course. Hello, and welcome to the Global Venturing Review Podcast. I'm Fernando Moncada. Spinning a fund out of the corporate parent's umbrella can be a tricky process. If done right, though, you can end up in a situation where you can enjoy both the benefits of being your own outfit and the advantages of close operational links with a big-name corporate. Essentially, you can have your cake and eat it, too. And this is where AEI Horizon X, the venture firm spun out of aerospace and defense company Boeing, finds itself. Brian Shetler, head of Horizon X, joins GVR to talk about the aerospace and defense sectors, how on top of being beneficial for a host of reasons, including increased capital and compensation, the spin-out was also driven by internal crises within Boeing. He detailed the value of maintaining close connections after spinning out, how having external LPs in the fund affect the fund, and how still having a dedicated implementation team inside Boeing boosts the entire portfolio. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe to the Global Venturing Review, and above all, enjoy the show. So Brian, great to see you, and welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks a lot, Fernando. Great to be here. Yeah, you were just in uh, in Tel Aviv uh, just, just now uh, before. Is it, is it sunnier there than it is where you are right now? Yeah, it's always nice to escape the Midwest winters, so... Uh, <laughs> Having having some time in Tel Aviv is always always welcome. Beautiful place and, and a lot of good things going on from a startup perspective. Where where are you guys based? So uh, AEI Horizon X as a whole, the the main office is in Boca Raton, Florida. So t- talk about another nice destination for yeah. uh, winter uh, meetings. But I personally live in St. Louis, Missouri. That's my my base from my legacy Boeing days. Family's all based here. So and also nice sort of central location to get. Pretty much everywhere in in the country and, and and world that I need to. Yeah, right. And you've got the uh, you got the Ozarks not too far away from there, right? I That's mean, right. still That's quite right. far, but not like you know re- relatively close at least. Yeah. If you've got a boat, you can go out on the water. Um, right. Not the same as the ocean in in, in Boca, but uh, it'll work. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I, I figured to to start off with, you know, um, maybe you. I mean, you said you guys are based in Florida, but give me some uh, some background on on yourself and, and your background and how you kind of got into into corporate venturing and and, and to Horizon X. Yeah, I'm, my path is is pretty untraditional. I started as an electrical engineer. Thought I was going to design and build aerospace products for uh, most of my my career. Right out of college, went to work for a defense company called Northrop Grumman out on the East Coast, and quickly started pivoting into corporate strategy, corporate development, technology, investment sort of roles at, at sort of the business unit level, and then ultimately kind of corporate, you know, broader portfolio, company portfolio levels. And what what started fascinating me was the, the decision-making that was going on around investment priorities and, and what was being, you know, kind of part of the discussion for make-buy decisions and, and the like. And what I realized is the external environment was was woefully discounted in terms of the value that could be brought. Everything was was sort of, hey, we can build that, we can design that, we have smart engineers and we're gonna do everything ourselves. And and what I started pushing on was, you know, even back then before kind of corporate venture was a big thing, I was was how does a partnership with a big corporate sort of work with the venture community and how we could do more together. And I kept that journey going for a decade or so across multiple companies. Besides Northrop, there's one in the UK called Cobham that I worked for, even Boeing for a while when I was in their Phantomworks business. But then I came back to Boeing in 2017, right as the company was firing on all cylinders from a cash generation perspective, but also feeling you know exposed or vulnerable to disruption from the outside. And it got me, got me to a, a point where the CEO of Boeing was supportive of standing up a corporate venture unit. And, and so I got to come in and build that from scratch, and which was nice because I, I could have a fresh perspective on, hey, what would work for the culture of Boeing, what was sort of needed desperately in sort of the aerospace and defense innovation ecosystem for, for venture sort of activities, 
and, and we got to build that uh, uh, from scratch. And, and I got to learn a lot from our, our partners in global corporate venturing, from other you know, members that have been around for a lot longer than us to avoid some of the pitfalls. And, and so we built that. And over the course of five years or so, we invested in 50 plus portfolio companies, deployed a couple hundred million dollars worth of capital. But where we spent most of the time was really trying to get the traction piece of doing investments, you know, right. It was one thing to just make investments and sit back for, you know, financial outcomes. It's another thing to actually do something with the technology. And I spent a lot of time, you know, working with the GCV Institute and trying to mentor others on that's really the the where the rubber meets the road on how you derive the value from the, the global corporate venturing activities. And we spent a lot of time getting that right. It's a cultural element, it's an organizational element, it's it's process steps, it's managing expectations, and then it's actually executing. And it took some time, but we we really stood up a great capability there inside of Boeing to realize the value of the technologies we were investing in. And that set us up for uh, where we are today, which was evolving the structure where the Boeing balance sheet didn't have to do the investing, but instead you leverage a, a, an external manager and a third-party capital from other LPs, but keep that operational relationship to get the best of the, the sort of corporate strategies and the corporate benefits that you want and expect from uh, these venturing activities. And so that's how we're using it today. And I'm sure we'll go into more detail on what some of that means and how the setup is, but that's the, the random 20 plus year journey that, that got me to, to where I am. Yeah, certainly. And, and as you alluded to, you guys uh, spun out from Boeing, which, which under which you were originally formed. How, how did the partnership with the A Industrial come along? Was it where they sought out for their kind of existing expertise or had you guys worked together before yeah. in the future and in the past rather? I'd say first and foremost, we spent a lot of time just getting buy-in inside of Boeing that a spin-out was the appropriate thing to pursue, that that especially in Boeing's sort of challenged corporate environment at the time, you had COVID and 737 MAX both putting pressure on the balance sheets of Boeing. There was, there was certainly an appreciation for creative ways to solve, I call it discretionary cash you know, issues and, and venture frankly, is a discretionary cash line item. And so uh, first and foremost, just building the rationale for, hey, why, why a spin out? Why bringing third party capital to the table is, is wise and, and actually effective? Then it was, okay, explore the universal landscape of what options could exist from just me spinning out with a five person team and running an independent fund where, where we, we go off and start fundraising from scratch all the way to sort of partnership with, you know, big, you know, entrenched investing platforms, Carlisle and the like of others. But, you know, neither one of those was, was really appealing at the end when I, when I was really zeroed in on what's, what option yields the highest probability of success of this being a long-term thing of us being able to raise capital in the first place. And then also working with folks that understand the nuances of our world and, and those end markets of aerospace and defense are very nuanced, right? There's a lot of differences from, say, a traditional commercial market. You have a lot of considerations around the barriers to entry, around certification, highly regulated sort of uh, technologies, that sort of thing. And so we, we then, you know, kind of came across AE Industrial. In fact, we came across them because they wanted to co-invest together in a portfolio company we were already involved in. And that sort of allowed us to build a relationship with them, got to see how they thought about venture and, and ultimately the AEI value proposition to the companies that they invest in. And it really just seemed like a match made in heaven in terms of how if, if we came together and offered a turnkey venture capital sort of service and platform inside the broader AEI umbrella, that would leave us with a soup to nuts, sort of very early stage investing all the way to late stage buyout, you know, traditional sort of private equity tools all under one roof and allowed us to be more integrated on, you know, the best practices, the resource sharing, everything from our sort of venture mindset to the very operational and execution oriented mindset of private equity. Bring that all together, along with maintaining the Boeing strategic advantage that comes from 
you know, access to their technical resources and, and, and insights, as well as pushing our portfolio companies on them as sort of early adopters, as customers, leveraging Boeing's market channels to, to accelerate growth. And so it all came together and, and, and sort of a best of hybrid, I, I, I feel. Yeah. And, and was there a sense back then that, you know, notwithstanding the, the benefits that would come from spinning out, you know, including compensation and, and getting external capital in, et cetera, uh, was there a sense that, that in that corporate environment of Boeing at the time that, you know, if there was some kind of, you know, reexamination of that discretionary money that you were talking about, that, that perhaps the unit wouldn't have survived? It's always a risk, right? And, and, and you know, corporates, when, when you don't have a dedicated fund structure, when there's nothing contractual that gives you, you know, a six-year term, 10-year term, anything like that, you know, corporates have the right and, and, and frankly, the history of turning things on and off with the flick of a switch. I've been, you know, the good thing, I guess, about my background of being in corporates for as long as I did is I've seen the draconian sort of outcomes that can happen in times of pressure. And I didn't want to see that happen, of course. Now, nobody was threatening and saying, you know, you're on the on the chopping block tomorrow. But I also know when you when you pin the dog into a corner, you know, what what can sort of happen. And so I wanted to make sure I was pre presenting options where I was creatively trying to help solve for the problems that were inside of Boeing, just like business units were. Business units were having to cut costs. Other discretionary sources of, of in the company had to cut costs. Capital expenditure was greatly reduced. And so here was an option to, to save essentially, call it 50 to $75 million a year, depending on how much we, we wanted to deploy in startups and, and have, that, have that cost be absorbed by, by others and actually add to it give, it, give it a mechanism where maybe we don't want to just be deploying $50 million a year in the startups. Maybe we want to be deploying 100, 200 million. And you would never have that mechanism inside of Boeing to aggregate capital together. It was only set up to be balance sheet driven. And so we, 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 there wasn't really a lot of growth prospects there unless Boeing's balance sheet just went through the roof and they wanted to deploy hundreds of millions of dollars you know, more into it, which which some companies are doing, right? I mean, others are companies that are doing well are plussing up their their capital, but I view things as an opportunity cost as well. And if Boeing can use some of its balance sheet for, for other critical areas and we can still give them nearly everything they want and, and the, the, the sort of strategic value from the startups, the eyes and ears to the emerging markets and emerging technologies out there, but they can divert their $50 million a year to other you know, activities inside of Boeing. Like that's a win-win for everybody. And that's, that's ultimately what the CEO of Boeing bought into and continues to support us today. Talk a bit more about that, about the relationship as it currently stands today with Boeing. What's that kind of like? So when we spun out, we, we had a portfolio of, of, like I said, roughly you know, 45, 50 companies. We, we spun that entire portfolio out. We recapitalized it with some additional funds, some from Boeing, some from additional LPs to give us additional follow-on capital and runway to support that original portfolio. And so that one's always going to feel like you know, more of a Boeing portfolio. We, we built that portfolio solely with Boeing's interests at heart and as exists in corporate venture, right? You know, some of the rationale for doing things wasn't necessarily predicated on financial returns or, or you know, some sort of economic priority. It was squarely in the sweet spot of, hey, hey, what's best for Boeing? So we continue to manage and operate that in conjunction with Boeing to really drive, you know, those, those outcomes that were originally intended from those investments. The other sort of nuance of what we've set up now is, is the first sort of bespoke new fund. We call it our Horizon X Fund 2, which is really about, okay, starting to invest in the next round of early stage companies that we as sort of independent investors now feel like are really going to be driving the future of, of aerospace, both kind of commercial aero and, and space, and then defense markets and national security. And so there we're hunting for late seed, series A sort of stage companies. And, and the way we think about it is, you know, bringing that investor mindset to the forefront of, okay, we see this as a venture quality company. We see this as a company we could generate a 20X return. And then what 
what do we try to layer on top of that as our strategic differentiators and, and secret weapons to ensure those companies are successful as possible? And that's where we have a close working relationship with Boeing on, hey, what interest levels do they have in this technology? What demand signals are they seeing? What sort of business unit traction or technology community traction inside of Boeing can we start pulling on to accelerate the adoption there? We like to think there's there's nobody better than than you know big strategic partners to help control and influence which technologies become the standards at the end of the day and, and where we can leverage Boeing and other players in the aerospace ecosystem. Like that's that's sort of our role. We're that we're that broker that can bring Boeing to the table, and we can bring you know other strategic partners in the supply chain to the table. Boeing views us right, and we we operate with them as as their venture partner, right? They're investing in us to help scout new technologies. They're an LP in our next fund. So in the in the first fund, you know they were sort of the dominant control player. In, in the second fund, they are a limited partner. So they've made an investment and commitment in the fund, but it's it's sub sort of 25%. It gives enough room for other capital to come to the table, but it's meaningful enough, right? That they have skin in the game to the overall success of the portfolio. They have an incentive to give us all the value that we need to help drive portfolio performance, which is the, the perfect relationship, I think, at the end of the day. You know, in preparation for our chat, I came across mention of your applied innovation team. Can, can you explain what that is and, and what they do? Yeah, so when, when I was inside of Boeing, I had two units reporting to me. I had the investing team, which was solely focused on sourcing and executing quality deals to help build our portfolio, manage the governance and and kind of continuous engagement from an investment perspective with with the, the the portfolio. Then I built an applied innovation group, which, as I mentioned in some of the opening comments, was about executing and delivering the strategic value that comes with being a corporate venture. At the end of the day, a lot of a lot of different venture groups, corporate venture groups, are doing this these days. It wasn't always in existence, but you know what what we found and and why you know, I'll, I'll preach this to the day I die is, you know, if you leave venture engagement just to sort of the responsibility of the business unit to do it as part of their day job, they're nearly always going to get consumed with the bigger issues and the higher, you know, financial impact and priorities that they're getting beaten over, you know, the head with every single day. And and that leaves the venture activities always in a in a disadvantaged position. We you need a dedicated team to to act as the forcing function to keep momentum going, to keep building the sort of project management expertise and, and follow through and engagement with the business unit so it stays front and center and doesn't get sort of overwhelmed by distraction or other priorities. You also need to seed that group with a little bit of budget themselves so they can jumpstart the engagement mechanism with these portfolio companies before the business units can can integrate that sort of financial commitment into their annual planning cycles. Most big companies, right, you plan for R&D, you know, annually. It's sort of a complicated process if you want to reprioritize or replan over the course of the year. You, you might not have been aware at all of a new venture company as you were making your R&D plan. And then all of a sudden, four months later, it's like, wow, here's a great opportunity to work together. But I have to wait six months or 10 months until I can you know, replan my R&D. You give this applied innovation group the discretionary capital and flexibility to deploy, hey, a $500,000 check or you know, work agreement with a portfolio company. That allows you to just jumpstart faster. We always joke, you know, we're, we're trying to bridge a notoriously slow, slow, slow clock cycle inside of a big company with a very, very fast clock cycle inside a venture company. And the applied innovation team, you know, acts as that sort of buffer to bring the two together. So that group, it's, you know, it exists within Boeing, but it focuses on Horizon Nexus portfolio companies. That's right. So when we spun out, 
I took the investing team, the one half of that group with me, and we, we continue to kind of operate kind of the investing mechanism of getting, you know, the, the, the equity in, in new businesses. The applied innovation group stayed behind and they report now into the chief technology officers of Boeing's team. And so there are eyes and ears and concierge service to the Boeing company that's solely focused on our portfolio and how we work with, you know, the venture startups that, that we're choosing to invest in. Yeah, it sounds like a pretty good setup that you've got there. I mean, it sounds like you guys can get your cake and eat it too, it seems like. Well, I mean, there's a lot of advantages. You, you pointed it out earlier, like it's really hard to retain a team for the long run in venture inside of a big corporate right? It, you know, they, they, if you're really good, especially on the investing side, your competition out there are, are firms that will pay venture wages and, and give you skin in the game with carry, right? It's not just your standard, hey, I'm a, I'm a level five professional inside of a corporate HR hierarchy or, or, or nomenclature, right? And you're going to get paid your, your base and, and your, your bonus. To illustrate the point here, the very best year we had inside of our, our in, when we were inside of Boeing from a, a returns perspective on the fund was a year that we, you know, turned a $20 million investment into a particular company into a $100 million plus return in less than seven months. And like that, in any kind of venture fund setting, that would be an ultimate home run where you get rewarded handsomely for. Well, what did we get rewarded for? Well, it was the worst year in Boeing's corporate history ever because they had the max and, and COVID crushing their economic performance. So bonuses were zeroed out across the board for all employees of Boeing. So even though we had our best year ever, you know, we got our worst year ever in terms of compensation. That's a setup that that's really hard to sustain when any other venture fund outside would be paying folks handsomely. So I as a leader of a group, first and foremost, wanted to think about how I retain good employees, how I attract and motivate new folks to want to join us. And that's been an amazing journey that uh, this new setup has been able to offer us. The quality and caliber of candidates that we were able to retain on the team is great. The ones that are, you know, we can actually interview and try to hire on the outside, no longer laugh at us when we offer, uh, you know, the compensation, like, you know, a package like we did when we were inside of Boeing. And that's going to be the key to success of this in the long run, especially with that uh, applied innovation team, enabling the strategic value component from within. Yeah. And, and you mentioned, you know, you guys are working on, on your on your second fund now, which by the way, is it, are you guys just raising at this point? Are you already deploying? We're both. So we, we had a first close. So it's a $250 million fund that uh, we announced late last year with Boeing as an anchor LP. We've, we had a first close at the end of the year and started investing out of it already. We've done two portfolio companies and have about five or six in the pipeline that will close in the next call it month or so. So we, we are actively deploying, but we'll still be raising, I imagine, for the next few months to, to kind of fill out the rest of the 250. And generally speaking, how does having external LPs affect the strategic approach? I'd say external LPs, what they're doing is helping enable the strategic approach that we've set up here. It gives us sufficient capital to take, you know, meaningful bets inside of portfolio companies, right? We, we want to have check size large enough to get enough ownership of these companies where we have a board seat or a board observer at a minimum. Like our strategy is to be a hands-on partner with every company that we invest in. And so being able to have a check size, having the right ownership levels and skin in the games, that those third-party LPs help give us enough capital to be able to write those checks, especially at sort of the late seed series A level. You can you can get you know quite a bit with the, the valuations at those stages. And so that's that's really what we're offered. I mean, we have a mixture of LPs, right? We have some that are going to, you know, just be high net worth individuals or financial institutions that are, you know, just let me know when I get my financial return. You'll have others that are more semi-strategic or other players in in in, you know, the broader aerospace domain. And they have something to give and and add value to the overall portfolio as well. If we can be this hub and spoke system of you know, we're, we're concentrating and focusing 
high value impact sort of partners to our portfolio. Boeing's one example. The entire portfolio of AE Industrial is another example. They represent, you know, their own sort of customers and channel partners for our portfolio as well. We have operating professionals that have been ex-CEOs of big aerospace companies and can bring execution expertise. We might have strategics that are in the tier two, tier three of the supply chain, and they know how to work as a parts and components supplier instead of just a final integrator. Like the more we can bring to the table, uh, and I should mention international experience and domains. So we'll have investors from all over the world in our LP base, right? And if they can help open doors across different regions around the world for our portfolio companies, it has a huge impact of what we can offer that, that others can't necessarily. And how much are you guys targeting for the for fund two? $250 million fund that we've targeted. We, we thought that was in a reasonable amount, not too big, not too small to be our first foray in sort of this more independent, quasi-independent sending. But I think in the long run, it's our full expectations that this is something that grows with each subsequent fund. There's more capital that we can deploy. There's no shortage of startups that you know we're interested in and are looking at. And so uh, that's been that's been uh, you know exciting and gives us confidence that that we can be in this for the long haul. And it's like a ten-year fund. Ten-year fund. Yep. I mean, aerospace is already notoriously long cycle from a technology adoption curve. So, and, and then given that we're investing, you know, starting at sort of late seed series A, we want to ensure, you know, we kind of have the runway to give, uh, give these companies the chance to, to mature and grow and scale. You know, we're going to try to deploy, you know, the, the initial investments, you know, in the first call it three years. So 25 portfolio companies or so in the first three years, and then reserve enough follow on to double down on the best of the best you know, we'll call it over the next three years or so. And then then we really just sort of manage the, the portfolio for returns o- over the, the remaining period of the fund. Mm-hmm. And l- let's talk about the markets for a sec, and perhaps starting with, with a nice, nice open-ended question. So if you look out at, at your broad focus area, so aerospace, uh, defense, where would you say that, you know, if you look back at the you know, last five years since, since you guys kind of kicked things off, where would you say have been the biggest areas of change and, and where would you say are the biggest potential kind of subsectors in the next, say, three to five years? No doubt the biggest area that changed was around everything sort of mobility focus. You know, there was classic sort of hype curve enthusiasm for every kind of new flying vehicle five years ago when we got started in this. I'm sure you know a lot of listeners and are familiar with the EV tall vertical takeoff and landing, you know, sort of platforms that have been in, in development. At, at, at current count, there's 200 plus different players still trying to compete, you know, for a product there. And you know, maybe five at the end of the day, we'll see full certification in the light of day. So we just sort of had mass hysteria, to be honest with you, fragmentation, a bunch of hype, a lot of, unfortunately, sort of dumb money going into some bets that won't see the light of day, you know, maybe it was interesting technology, but if you really look through the full life cycle of getting to certification and getting to a scaled product that had the business economics to be attractive for airline customers or, or the ultimate operator, like that's really, really hard and expensive and, and there just isn't enough capital to go around. So I think I've preached about this a lot that, you know, we're, we're transitioning from the fragmented nature there to concentration around a few of the select winners. We had the SPAC boom, bring a couple to market kind of publicly, but there's a couple others in the private domain. So we saw, we saw a whole, you know, kind of ecosystem start building out around that market. It wasn't just the platforms, but it was battery technology and other sort of enabling technology that was going to go into those. And we made some interesting bets along the way, more of the picks and shovels sort of mindset of, hey, who are going to be the leading players that that could offer a solution to any of these eVTOL providers, you know, if and when some are chosen as the winners. But you don't have to actually pick the aircraft at the end of the day that you think is is the best. So that was w- where we were. I'd say that's starting to fizzle, right? You're seeing the concentration and, and the some calmness sinking in uh, around the hype there. Where we're excited, you know, going in the, in the future, 
it's a number of areas and it's why our, our focus is still as broad as it is from digital solutions to hard tech to sustainability. But, you know, I'm personally excited still by a lot of the digital transformation that can occur across aerospace. It's been a notoriously lagging industry in terms of best practices and adoption of more modern tools. Everything from engineering tools from the upfront design to digital tools that are incorporated in factories to produce and manage, you know, this complex workflow, you know, even better. And then the aftermarket, like how do you actually do something with the data that's being generated and uh, on these aircraft or, or on a on a future product? How do you do something more predictive with artificial intelligence to have awareness of what's going on or what will happen? And that's that's where, you know, one of our key verticals is around digital transformation. But we got to balance that, right? We, you know, we've seen SaaS businesses over the last 10 years just explode in terms of adoption curves and valuations and and even some hype. And so being disciplined in the areas that we choose to kind of methodically bring into, you know, our industry and and start, you know, demonstrating results. I, you know, we talk about you being a true venture investor mindset now, you know, when you're in a corporate environment, you may not have cared about what your entry valuation was, you know, just, oh, hey, this is a neat technology. Well, we, we still want to be sensitive, laser, laser focused on, you know, the valuations that we're looking at various companies. And so we'll pass on some great technology that is just overhyped or still hasn't had some correction sink in on a valuation perspective. So we can still keep betting in and, and ensuring that the vintage of sort of a 2023 fund and 2024 fund, you know, your entry valuations are as, tr- as attractive as possible, because that's what's going to matter most at the end of the day when we, you know, kind of drive exits 10 years from now. And, and to that point, I think, you know, you guys launched Fund 2 at a, at a pretty opportune time, you know, following the, the craze of 2021. No, has that, has that been beneficial? It's an interesting environment out there, right? You know, to go from the richest, most flush with cash sort of environment that venture has ever seen, LPs writing checks on a whim and in new fund managers to something that exists today that's much more selective, much more focused on what their alternatives might be to to investing in venture and the, the performance expectations under you. All of my conversations with LPs, you know, are, are surrounded by opportunity every single day and how you differentiate yourself in that environment and show you're just, you're just not another generalist fund. You're not just another fund that, you know, basically the premise is we're going to invest in good companies and give you good returns. Like that's the most generic sort of spiel they hear thousands and thousands of times. It's more, how are you going to influence and drive those outcomes that you're sort of promising me and not leave it to chance or not just say it's because of my superior selection skills versus, you know, somebody else. And so that's why this whole operational layer we have wrapped around us of benefits from Boeing, benefits from AE and the private equity side, our real world experience in the end markets that we serve for decades and decades, hundreds of years of experience across the team, you know, kind of in these markets. Like that's that's where we try to bring the LPs comfort and confidence that we can drive a great return and also drive a much lower risk a kind of perspective into the mix as well because of that sort of downside protection that comes from having been in this industry long enough and, and being able to account for the pitfalls that naturally exist in, in many of these uh, markets. And what's your view on, and generally speaking, in terms of portfolio balance of, of- digital versus hardware based technology because obviously the, the latter especially in you know aerospace as you alluded to earlier has a quite long development cycle how, how do you look at that we're not afraid of hardware i think is is first and foremost and we tell our lps this right this this is if you're investing in us you're you're signing up for an appreciation that hardware is hard aerospace hardware is hard and it takes some time that said there's plenty of balance between a digital solution and a hardware solution. We really think there's some great hardware bets out there that are going to be very disruptive to the future of, of our end markets. And if if everyone can be patient enough for how far and how deep into the J curve we have to go for that hardware to transition from 
sort of slow, steady, steady state to exponential growth. Like once you're a hardware solution that's baked onto an aircraft program or platform, the switching costs and change is almost insurmountable, right? So this protected position that comes when that moment finally comes is truly extraordinary. Software can be sort of switched out on a whim. It's a little simplified for aerospace. It still takes time. But hardware, like you get 30-year life cycles, if not longer, for how long some of these 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 aircraft are in operation or how valuable the, the hardware is to these customers. So it's um, it's good to have both, right? So we like to have a diversified portfolio construction methodology, diversified in terms of both both sort of stage and expected outcomes. So we want some of the pre-seed that are, that are probably going to go the full 10-year clock. Maybe there's some Series A deals that you could get something in a five-year window. So you get, get a mix of, hey, when some of those distributions come out of the fund. But we also want a mix of hardware versus software. We want a mix of geographies, right? And, you know, U.S., non-U.S., and, and we want a mix of some that are, you know, leading with commercial aero as the end market versus some that are leading with defense and national security. So I think with, with the right sort of diverse portfolio construction, we can, we can account for a lot of the variability that can come, you know, in the markets in the years ahead, but, but also a good sort of consistent sort of mindset to, you know, good financial returns at the end of the day based on the bets that we're taking. Yeah, and you mentioned earlier when 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 you were talking about the EV tolls, you know the the kind of obviously the the certification processes that they had to go through and, and the regulatory hurdles. That that's also you know a significant issue on on the other side of your guys's ledger, right? In the in the defense industry, it's a it's a, it's a pretty labyrinthine environment that startups have, kind of have to navigate through to you know if they want to get a contract. How do you guys go about helping them do that? Yeah, I mean, that, and that's that's a lot of the handholding and value that that we provide. I mean, commercial aero is scary enough of the barriers to entry and trying to knock on doors to get the time of day from some of the the big customers. The defense, as you point out, is very niche. It's hard for young startups to to get the time of day with key decision makers across defense. You can, of course, go the traditional ways of into big established players like a Boeing, a Lockheed, a Raytheon, Northrop, et cetera, and use their market channels to get there. But, you know, unless there's some sort of differentiator to really get their attention, it can be often hard. And that's where we use Boeing for, right? We use the fact that, you know, this this could be a portfolio company of the fund of which Boeing is an LP. We use that as a motivator for Boeing to bring sort of the best of sort of capability and and behavior right to help open doors for us in the defense environment so that's first and foremost i would say the other thing that we use quite a bit is just our knowledge of defense i mean like i've I've worked in in defense companies for decades and so the knowledge that comes from who you can talk to and who can provide value where there might be sources of capital both you know real revenue into the business maybe some non-dilutive nre and grants that come to help you know, with technology development and maturation, those are ones where we actively just help, you know, reach reach out to these players for on behalf of our portfolio companies to open doors. We might write letters of endorsement and other other forms of support, you know, engagements to, you know, know that so that the, the various groups in defense can know that this tech has been validated by folks that know what they're talking about, it has the stamp of approval of Boeing or you know, key leaders across AE industrial, like that, that means something versus just leaving it to chance or for maybe DOD to take a risk on something that that's unproven or un, undiligent. So we use that quite a bit as well. And then, you know, we count on the, the operational support that can come from AE as well. Like the, the last thing DOD wants is a technology that sounds great, but is never delivered or executed for them. So how can we de-risk the execution phase of the the product and delivery in the long term. And I think that's where this hybrid model with AE works really well. It's like, hey, there's there's clear lines of sight of what the next steps for this portfolio company could be once it leaves venture, right? You know, there's there's a partner here that can work with, you know, the buyout side with the, the long-term growth, maybe help, you know, the, the the eventual acquisition of this technology by an established player. And that 
that sort of long-term confidence that the technology is going to be there for decades and decades is another big consideration for these folks. And if you're a defense startup that that perhaps doesn't really have a kind of dual use angle, to what extent is not getting a government contract a death sentence for us to make an investment? Well, for well, yeah, well, for, firstly for them to to kind of survive and have a business, and then as a result for you to make an investment. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I'd say we're going to invest in some companies that are just going to be pure play commercial for you know their entire lives. And there's ones that might be pure play national security and defense. I do think though, where we have an honest conversation with every portfolio company is when there are use cases that straddle both sides of the fence and how we can help guide the companies to make the transition to the other side. There's tons of history there of the pitfalls that can happen if that's done incorrectly. It can affect everything from IP ownership to the commercial sort of terms and profitability of the products that you sell. If you do that wrong, the government's going to come down on you with all sorts of restrictions. And, and so our experience there can help guide the companies to do it the right way and be able to get the maximum benefit for, for doing that in the long run. And I think we're seeing a willingness from the Defense Department, you know, that's the highest that it's ever been to embrace commercial oriented technology. And so the more that we can take advantage of that, guide some of our portfolio companies the right way to, to amplify and widen their market potential, like that's a win-win for everybody involved in that. And, and when you look out at the defense market and, well, may, maybe even wider at, at, at the world, really, well, what are the kind of forces that you see shaping trends in the market? And, and perhaps as a, as a kind of corollary to that, how are kind of current geopolitical events or, or conflicts kind of shaping and trickling down into how you assess and, and invest in companies? I think what we see with the current macroeconomic environment is it really can cause a knee-jerk reaction to some of the capabilities that that are needed and, and are, are valued. I think this transition that we've gone from the last couple of years of thinking more about you know, the global war on terror and, and some of the things that might have been happened, happening, you know, from a terrorist perspective around, around the world and how you protect against that has now flipped back to the other side of kind of nation state peer on peer issues, you know, similar to, to the Cold War kind of times and, and what's on with Russia, the rise of China are, are now really driving a lot of the national security interests again, and how, you know, everything from you know, big things that are happening in, in space to, to give yourself confidence that you have, you know, all the assets in space to give you the data and insights around, you know, what these countries are doing. That's really important. Cybersecurity continues to be, a, you know, a huge focus, both software-based cybersecurity, but hardware-based cybersecurity. These very vulnerable platforms out there, you know, things that have been built decades and decades ago that need some sort of modern cybersecurity protection, ground vehicles, air vehicles, you know, and everything in between. So I, I think, you know, it, it now is a perfect time, right, to keep driving new venture opportunities into defense and security. You know, these there's larger budgets, you know, being deployed for defense, certainly in the U.S. than ever before. The latest defense budget was quite tremendous. But that said, a lot of those expenses go to operational kind of elements and, you know, paying and, and maintenance and fuel and that sort of stuff. The new technology side where we can continue to offer commercially derived technology or things that transcend, you know, both worlds that can be developed quicker, cheaper, better. That's, you know, where we can offer our defense partners, you know, new capability. And, and that's, that's where, where venture firms can, can, can be great eyes and ears to what those technologies are and then bring capital and resources together to get get the right sort of technology level readiness so that they can be incorporated and adopted for the warfighter. So I think that's that's pretty exciting that we're seeing even more traction there. And the, and the governments around the world are trying to make that even easier. They're setting up, you know, I know Defense Innovation Unit's been around for a long time, but they're doing more with, with technology startups. You have the various branches and services of uh, defense, you know, having their own startup engagement arms. And we're just seeing even even more and more acceptance of, of venture and startup as as technology, you know, drivers and leaders in, in terms of capability. 
And for, for for the benefit of any you know founders who might be who might be listening in, one, how do they reach out to you guys? And two, when they manage to get in the room for a pitch, what what is it that they need to show you? What do you want to hear from them? Well, we're hopefully an open book in terms of being accessible, right? You can go to AE Industrial's website, aeroequity.com, and there's a Horizon X link there, and we have a contact us. So so definitely reach out that way or connect with us on LinkedIn, you know, flag any one of the members of the team and let us know what you're offering. And we always respond, you know, whether whether it's something we can do or can't do. But I'd say if you get an opportunity to speak to us and the kinds of things that we like to look at, shouldn't be surprising. I mean, they're they're sort of the best the best of of pitch decks and you know what what savvy venture investors look for, but clearly understanding what the technology and the offering is, you'd be surprised how many times you get to you know three quarters of the deck and you still don't actually know what the product or, or service is that they're talking about. So we're detail oriented individuals, we're techies ourselves. We we love to understand what the technology and offering is. So so definitely feel free to geek out with us. We like to understand, you know, what is so unique and defensible about your offering that that others can't do or replicate quickly. I think, uh, you know, it's often forgotten too that, you know, we don't we don't want a commodity. We don't want something that's, you know, not you know unique in terms of its defensibility and longevity of being, you know, the the, the best of in its space. We want to definitely understand the founders teams. You know, we're we're investing in people first and foremost, right? And a good idea can be made great by an awesome founding team. Uh, a great idea can be made very, very bad by a, a bad founding team. And so, you know, we just really want to understand the individuals that are involved, the pedigree, you know, motivation and enthusiasm, that that sort of you know, founder perspective on on the technology and what got them there, what motivates them. And then traction to date, the, you know, where, where they see themselves going in terms of kind of economics and the customers that might be surrounding this or even other, other investors. And con- conversely, what kind of red flags uh, should they avoid or, or pitfalls? I think you already kind of alluded to one in terms of, you know, getting to the point with, with, with the nature of the business, but you know, are there some other ones? I'd say, look, be realistic in terms of the addressable market and the, the opportunity that really exists. But the thing that I think turns us off the most is just being so kind of marketing driven of showing, you know, excessive hockey sticks or just completely unbelievable sort of future states. We, we like folks that are realistic. You know, you want, you still want to see sort of the venture quality outcomes at the end of the day, but we've been in these markets long enough to know the timing it takes, the, the, um, you know, rate of ascent that, that certain technologies that can take. And I fear just, trying to sell us on something that's so unbelievable, it, it makes it hard for us to have, you know, belief in the rest of what you're pitching. So I'd say just come, come together with the right balance of aggressiveness and, and, and positive view, but the realities of the timing that it might take. The other thing I'd say is don't, don't forget to come with the, the sort of why us. If it feels too generic, if it feels like, you know, we're just seeing, seeing boilerplate kind of material, it, you know, makes it you know, we we have limited opportunities to invest our dollars and more opportunities than we possibly could fund. And we want to understand that they want to work with us just as much as we want to work with them, that we're not just viewed as a pocketbook. We're going to be viewed as a partner that works with them, you know, both at the board level, but also at some of the operational levels of the company to make them the best that they can be. And we want to see what their thoughts are on how we could help and, you know, their research and perspective of us to sort of indicate, hey, where, where the low-hanging fruit could be and opportunities to work closely together. And, and on the corporate side of things, you know, what, what might uh, corporations be able to do better or more of to you know, help their CVCs or aff- affiliated fund managers and, you know, the startup ecosystem? You know, corporates should keep thinking about what their applied innovation corollary is inside of their organizations. What are they doing to actively manage and support the, the transition and traction of these technologies from the outside? I think there's been tremendous progress and a lot of teams are set up this way now for success, but keeping the resources going is great. I think too, at the end of the day, you know, the corporates that take the mindset of, of supporting 
an ecosystem and using venture to rise the tide for all boats, you know, are going to fare better at the end of the day than the ones that just think about using venture to lock up exclusivity and sort of proprietary access for themselves at the expense of others. I don't think that's very valuable for the startups at the end of the day to be sort of locked out a part of the market. But I also think for those technologies that need wider sources of capital beyond just what a corporate can offer, third party investors aren't going to like those sort of situations where they see the, the limitations placed on you know, individual companies. And that was the big tra transformation that we undertook, which was, you know, we didn't operate that way inside of Boeing. We still had a very merchant supplier, you know, non-exclusive sort of view of our startup engagement. But the perception can always exist that a corporate might be operating that way or in the optics that, you know, what does that corporate being on the balance sheet actually mean and what sort of preferred rights do they have? Even if there weren't any, the concern was always there. The fact that we're set up now to be independent and making the investments out of a fund instead of off a balance sheet, that's allowed more companies comfort to come to us, like ones that have said, we never would have come to you when you were still inside of Boeing, but now that you're independent, we want to make ourselves known. We want to talk to you about an investment. Like that's, corporates need to keep making sure that if they really want to see the best of what's out there, that they're setting themselves up for both reputationally and optically in sort of a, a pretty kind of friendly nature or, or, or maximum potential sort of nature for these companies. Yeah, fantastic. I mean, that, that sounds really useful. And and I really, you know, appreciate you coming on the on the show today, Brian. It's been a pleasure speaking. And then, you know, good luck with Fun2 and uh, with everything you guys are doing. Look forward to keeping in touch. Thanks, Fernando. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for the questions. And uh, uh, we'll talk soon. Absolutely. Have a good one. And that about does it from us this week. Thank you all for tuning in. You can always catch the GVR podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever else you'd like to do your listening. I have been Fernando Moncada. Our sound engineer is Mark Chatterley from In-Ear Production, whose great work you can check out at inearproduction.com. And our music is by Kevin McLeod and a Creative Commons license. We'll be back again soon. Until then, have a good one. Mm -hmm.